you're looking at the world's heavyweight champion, the man that can truthfully say that he can beat any man in the world. Hello, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, with another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. And once again, we have a show that we do with a bit of a heavy heart because it never gets any easier to do shows like this because all too often we keep hearing about some of the legends and some of the Hall of Famers that, that we lose. And this one especially, I mean, you can even go back and talk about past episodes and where we we wanted to talk about this man forever and that is the late great harley race who passed away last week as of this recording and we've been talking about doing a show on him because we wanted to do one before he passed and unfortunately uh that just schedules didn't allow it but joining me on this look at the life and times of harley race is my usual co-host crazy train jonathan bullock Oh, Lord, all aboard, ladies and gentlemen. A little tongue-tied there. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I'm partly to blame for that because um, I got to know Harley a little bit, and I had tried to get Harley to come on, and I think he would have, but uh, his health uh, issues always seemed to prohibit a uh, time we could link up, and now he's no longer with us, so we're, we're going to have to do it this way, and, and I hate that but because, I mean – I would love for our listeners to have been able to sit under the learning tree of Harley Race, but unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be. Yeah. And really, with Harley, uh, he does seem like one of those guys where I don't know if he could have been anything else but a wrestler, you know, going all the way back to his teens, and we'll we'll touch on that. But uh, there are a lot of cliched names for greats in the history of, of wrestling, and many of them apply to Harley, you know, a man's man, a champion's champion, a, a Hall of Famer's Hall of Famer, and we've even talked about in the show and the other shows that are part of the Wrestling Brethren family that uh, there's a reason why I use the WWHD, you know, what, what would Harley do, you know, because it's just, it's one of those, whatever way you want to call it, you know, man's man or brass balls or whatever term you want to use, I think those terms definitely apply to Harley, and I'm sure we're we're in agreement there, right? Yeah. Uh, right after the news broke, I you know was going online to see tweets and things of that nature, and uh, Bill Apter had actually posted a video, uh, which Bill doesn't do much anymore because he's not really involved in the wrestling business much anymore. But he it was an, about 11, 12-minute tribute where he talked about his dealings with Harley, Um and had a picture up of a cover of PWI where he had taken the photograph and he thanked PWI for allowing him to use it. And it was one of the few times I think I've ever seen Bill Apter emotional. I mean, he was he was tearing up. He you could tell he was he was he was uh, moved. Mm-hmm. But he said something along the lines of what you're talking about, uh, how he often gets asked by people that knew he was involved in the wrestling business for years. Uh, what's a if I want to get into old timey wrestling? Is what most of these people will ask him. Who do I need to go watch? Who's like um, who's like a wrestler's wrestler? And mm-hmm. he said invariably one of the first names, if not the first name that popped in his mind was Harley Race. He was a wrestler when there was no such thing as sports entertainer. You were a professional wrestler. And he was the professional wrestler's professional wrestler. So I think, you know, 
I think Bill Apner probably knows his stuff, and he he's you know echoing your sentiments there, Seth. So yeah, I, I have to agree. On a lighter note, though, one of the things they've said about Harlan, we've talked about it with other people like uh, Robert Fuller and such, is like it's almost like he had no twenties or thirties. You know, he nope. went right from nineteen years old to forty years old, and he stayed forty years old for like the next forty years. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, he was he was well into his fifties when he you know in the nineties. When he was managing Vader, and he still looked like he was what about forty, forty-five years old. <laughs> right, right. He looked exactly the same as that infamous uh, Starcade match. Right. Now, unlike a lot of wrestlers, I guess we'll kind of start at the beginning, like we usually do. You know, Harley was not a stage name. He did use stage names early on in his career, but his real God-given name is is Harley Race. And a lot of fans, I don't think, know this, but uh, he he had a, a, about a polio uh, as a child, right? Yeah, that's was my understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pretty common back then, actually. You know, right. I mean, we hadn't, right. we had not developed the the polio vaccine uh, yet. So there were unfortunately a lot of kids that suffered from polio, and some of them died. Some of them, like Harley, went on and were able to have a fully functioning life. And uh, like a lady I knew at my church, she was wheelchair bound. So there was everything in between. It just right. way it was. Obviously, I think the most um, widely known example of somebody with polio was. You know, president when when Harley was born, of course, being uh, FDR, uh, President sure. Roosevelt. But Harley would watch on the Dumont Network, which is a network that is defunct. It's been gone since I think the the mid fifties, possibly the sixties. Uh, but that would carry wrestling, and I would want to say if this was Missouri, uh, it would probably be what wrestling at the Chase. He might have been watching then, or. Uh, probably. So your, your, your biggest stars would have been Luthez and Vern Gagne. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people understand that we've talked about it a little bit before, uh, wrestling on the Dumont network is legendary and extremely important to the history of the wrestling business. And when TV first came around in the fifties, um, part of the reason people bought televisions was to see stars, not shows. Cause the idea and concept of a, of, of a hit show hadn't hadn't been created yet but you bought a television to see the tv stars which were like bob hope and milton burl but other names people would talk about were the big name wrestlers in the time which were Ferganya, luthez gorgeous george freddie blassie they were all tv stars and and, and Anton- antonina rocca in in the northeast so yeah it was wrestling has always been um Wrestling has always been on the cusp of whenever some for, new form of of um, visual media breaks out. You know, you, you have the 50s with the birth of television, and then the 80s with the birth of cable, and then the 90s with the blow-up of pay-per-view. And now they're, they're right there again with, you know, New Japan World and WWE Network with the over-the-top streaming stuff. It's just wrestling's a great medium for that, I mean, you've got colorful characters that know how to talk, uh, action, and it, it, it's a one set, one location set. I mean, you can see how it's it's kind of just cussed. When you're first breaking into any kind of business like that, you're looking for content, and wrestling's just really good content, and you know there's a built-in audience for it. So you know, yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't know when he would have started training, but the stories about Harley being a tough man or a tough uh, boy or, or whatever you, you want to say, uh, those go back all the way back to his childhood because there's a famous story about him getting into a fight in high school 
and the principal tried to break it up, and Harley went and beat up the principal because of it, <laughs> and, and that got him expelled from high school. And I don't, I at least where I was looking for studying Harley's career, I didn't see anything else about him having any education further than that. So it sounds like he may have gone right into wrestling as a as a teen, probably around you know fifteen, sixteen years old there. Yeah, I, I know he didn't attend college because he was wrestling professionally by, you know, 18, 19. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of him even graduating high school, so that sounds about right. Now, I believe his debut was, what, 61? Is that correct? Was that his debut? Yeah, so- sounds about right. You know, very much in the early 60s because it was right around the time of that, that horrible car accident. Uh, yeah, that would be right because that would make him a high schooler. He's a little younger than my dad, a couple years younger than my dad. So my dad graduated from high school in 60. So yeah, he probably got kicked out of high school like 58, 59. <laughs> you know, and there you go, right? Started training right. to wrestle and there, there you go. Now, he had gotten some training under the Zabiscos. And I, I, I've always had trouble saying their first names, but I think Stanislaus. You want me to say them? And Vladek, how, did, how was that? Stanislaus and, and Waldick. Okay. Now, somebody hearing this who might not know the early 20th century of wrestling history, you might recognize that last name as Zabisco. Well, that is the name that Larry Zabisco took. There actually was no real relation to them. And actually, I believe these Zabiscos, it was it was still a stage name as well. But uh, uh, I'm not sure about it being a stage name, but I know they were real brothers. Right. Waldeck and Stanislaus were real brothers. Right. But that is where actually Larry got the name Zabisco yep. from. It was a tribute to them. Right. Stanislaus was the bigger star of the two, but Waldeck was a big star too. And they were big stars in a lot of the territories. California, they were big stars. They were big stars in the mid in the Midwest, you know, Chicago, Ohio, you know, what would be the central states area would come to be that. So you know, that makes sense with Harley being from Kansas City. That was that territory. That was where they were big stars. So yeah, mm-hmm. makes sense that they were his trainers. Yeah. And whether this was an exchange for training or whether it was just work, but he also served as a chauffeur for a very well-known wrestler at the time, Happy Humphrey. And being a chauffeur may not seem like that big of a deal, but the problem is Happy Humphrey was what, like 500, 600 pounds? Yeah, he was like a 500-pound dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're talking about a guy that you literally have to help everywhere he goes and he can't bathe by himself and, you know, just a huge mountain of a man and you literally are essentially his helper for everything might not have been the most glamorous job, but I think, and this is purely just one man speculation here. Uh, I think it could be a way of showing humility or, or the, what somebody might have to do to earn the respect of others. I mean, do you think it's fair to, to think something paying like your that? Dues. Yeah. Paying your paying dues. Your that dues. Perfect way of putting it. Uh, Yes, but the other thing that I don't I think people forget is if you're with the okay, he w- Humphrey was was an attraction, you know. Obviously, no disrespect to Andre. Andre was probably the biggest attraction ever in the history of wrestling. When I say when I say I didn't say biggest draw, I said biggest attraction. You, you have to understand the biggest mm-hmm. wrestler is either Hogan, Rock, or Austin, and you can argue that all day long on the three of them. But um, but he was an attraction, which meant he never had a long run in any one territory. He would be brought in to pop a house. Guys like that would often be in, you know, multi-man handicap matches or, or, or go over in battle royals. So here's a young guy trying to break into the business who's with a guy who's a star who's going to get booked all over the place. So he's going to be in locker rooms and around the boys, 
you can see how that could be beneficial early in your career if you just shut up and listen and pay attention. Now, as far as wrestling, uh, Harley began wrestling in Missouri for Gus Karras, and he took the name Jack Long and was a tag team with a storyline brother named John Long. And right around this time, we're talking still Harley's 17, 18, maybe 19 years old, uh, his career was nearly ended because he was in a terrible car accident. And not only did this kill his newlywed wife, you know, they, they had just gotten married a month or two before, but she was pregnant with their child. And it injured his leg so badly that doctors wanted to amputate it. And in a pretty famous story, Karras made his way to the hospital, pleaded with the doctors not to amputate the leg, and they did not. However, Harley was told that he would never wrestle again, may not walk again. And he went on to go through all the physical therapy needed. And it took a while. I mean, we're talking about this accident happening like 60 or 61. And he made his return to wrestling in 1963. So you're talking about essentially two years worth of physical therapy to get back into ring shape. And I don't really know much about this, his second run in Missouri, but he was called the Great Mortimer which doesn't really sound like a uh, money-making name. <laughs> it does not, doesn't have the intimidating ring that Harley Race does, does it? <laughs> right, right. But shortly after that, Harley went to Amarillo, Texas, which when we do our show about the history of Texas wrestling and the formation of wrestling in Texas, that's definitely going to be a territory we'll, we'll talk about because that's where the Funk Brothers came from and their father, Dory Funk Sr. So Harley shows up to work uh, with the Funks, and I think it was Dory. I don't think it was Junior. I think it was Dory Sr. had said something to the effect of, you're going by the name Jack Long and your real name is Harley Race. So it's like, you know, <laughs> from then on, he for the rest of his career, he, he was Harley Race. It's, it's just one of those cases of usually you try to find the guy with the normal name and give him a cooler name. Well, here they had the guy with the cooler name and for some reason they gave him a stage name. Right. It's like I've said about the, the Finn Wolfhard of Stranger Things fame if i had that name i, I would never change it I mean, that's the that's the greatest greatest name in the history of the world are you kidding me i mean you could go into any line of work and that name so you could be a porn star you could be a regular actor be a wrestler a football player i mean finn wolfhard come on <laughs> right yeah or or if finn wolfhard grows up and gets in the military and becomes sergeant or something like that sergeant wolfhard you know it's like <laughs> yeah uh, there was a there was a he never made it in the nfl but he was a good college football player was a guy named michael stonebreaker who played linebacker for notre dame are you that's like the <laughs> perfect name for a, a linebacker from notre dame stonebreaker but anyway i digress harley right. race just sounds like a badass doesn't it right right <laughs> now around this time uh maybe it was before or a little bit after this is around the time harley hooks up with larry hennig of course the father of kurt hennig and this is where they start to have their first run on a major stage, they were a tag team. They went to the AWA with Vern Gagne, and they feuded with Bruiser and Crusher, who were probably the most popular tag team at the time. They even feuded with Vern himself, who would have various partners. And they used the names Handsome Harley Race and Pretty Boy Larry Hennig. And if you've seen any pictures of Harley and any pictures of Larry, uh, Handsome is not one of the words that you would use to describe them. You know? Irony is not lost there, huh? <laughs> right. But it just makes sense for a heel to refer to themselves as good looking when it's pretty obvious that they're not. You know, that that, that uh, gag goes back about as far as wrestling itself. 
Right. And we, we, we will, we've already brought up already and we'll bring it up more as, as we talk about Harley, you know, the legendary, how tough he was, make no bones about it. Dick, Dick, the bruiser, Athlas and the crusher and, and Larry, the ax hitting were also known to be legitimate badasses. Cause so can you imagine how stiff those matches were? Those four guys beat the crap out of each other. I guarantee it. <laughs> right. And I believe they won the AWA tag titles three times over the years. Uh, but that really was, was his first run. And I was listening to, uh, Dave Meltzer and Fumi Saito talk about Harley's career. And I think Fumi had said that his first run in Japan, meaning Harley's was, was in the late sixties, like 1968. So even as early as the sixties, he was getting superstar treatment in, in Japan. And I, I would imagine, I mean, even back then, Japan was known for its, you know, strong styles, what they call it now, but stiffer, more realistic, don't sell as much. Um, a guy with Harley's style, probably in his legitimate toughness, probably got over big time there. Yeah, it, 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 would, de- it would definitely make sense. Now, there's one of, if not the most interesting story about Harley's career, because we're getting into the early 70s here. This is where he's really gotten a name for himself. He's traveled internationally, and the other promoters are starting to notice him. And in the 70s, of course, he was a multiple-time NWA world champion. But one of the ironies in that is he actually wasn't the first choice to win the title in his first NWA title run. Because the way things were done then, and certainly, Trent, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a committee that would vote on who the champion would be. And that's how title changes were done. It wasn't a case of just one promoter or booker making a choice. So all these NWA promoters and bookers, they were booking the NWA champion at the time, Tory Funk Jr., against Jack Briscoe, the babyface challenger. And they were doing big money all over the place. I mean, we're we're talking Paul Bosch in Houston, Eddie Graham in Florida, Sam Mushnick uh, in Missouri, and a lot of these were 60-minute broadways or a DQ finish or something like that. So all the big promoters were making big money with this program, and they knew that sooner or later there has to be the payoff. Jack's going to have to win the title from Dory. And that plan was supposed to happen on March 2nd for Paul Bosch in Houston. Well, Dory lets people know that on February 28th, there was an accident. Uh, I think it was a truck accident, something on his farm. And he was not able to wrestle for six weeks. And this rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, including the promoters, including Jack Briscoe himself, because it felt like it was Dory trying to get out of doing the job, as the, the, the term would say. So they that kind of ruined their plans. So they booked, whenever it was that Dory Jr. was able to wrestle again, they quickly booked Harley to beat Jr. for the title. And that was in Kansas City, you know, Harley's hometown. And the reason why they picked Harley is because of Harley's reputation. He was a legitimate tough guy, and if some... How, or for some reason, Junior wanted to go into business for himself, Harley would be able to stop him. I mean, is a, do I have that right, or at least mostly right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. Um, there was legitimate um, heat between Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. 
I would not say it was the levels of Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, but it wasn't far off. It was a very much. A, it was more of a professional uh, rivalry. Uh, they both uh, had legitimate amateur backgrounds. Dory Jr. in football at the college level, and then of course his father was a well-known shooter, so he was trained on how to shoot. And uh, we've talked at the past about the, the the legendary collegiate wrestling career that Jack Briscoe had at Oklahoma State. Yeah, both Briscoes really. And so he had a shooter background. And so I, th- I don't think it was the levels, like I said, of like Sean and Brett, but it was, it was a legitimate rivalry. You know, who was the, le- who was the better shooter, who was the better pure wrestler. And when this, when this went down with junior and the truck, like you said, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And I think the, the, the result, the, the, the way to resolve that Sam Mushnick at the time would have been the president of the NWA said, we'll send Harley in. Cause they neither one of them gonna screw with him. And that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And I think Dory, first off, I don't think Junior ever would have no-showed it or tried to come up with another excuse to get out of having to face Harley because he'd just done that with Jack, whether it was legitimate or not. I, and I do think that probably what really was an accident, you know? Right. Um, supposedly, uh, just, if, if I heard right, uh, Dor- whether it was Junior or whether it was Dory Sr., because Dory Sr. was still alive at this point, right? Or would he have passed? Uh, I can't remember when he passed. Of course, you know, his passing was so strange. I can't remember when it was, though. Okay. This was the one where, where he had actually went and wrestled that night, and then they had all the boys back to the to the ranch to, to have dinner afterwards, and got to a friendly, uh, you know, like like legit amateur shoot type match with another one of the boys, and in the and had a heart attack during it and died. Okay, I just checked. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like now I knew Dory Senior was was young when he passed, but uh, yes, yeah, he was. He was. It, yeah, it was actually mid. 1973 so he would have still been alive at this point but i i just remember yeah. hearing whether it was junior or whether it was senior like sending photographs to uh to to, to back up the claims of the accident because i think terry had i've heard terry tell the story of his father's death before see i don't even think terry had started wrestling yet i mean junior was because he was the world champion right but i don't I, I don't i think terry was still at west texas state playing football when it happened you know so he was there uh, you know, it, it was he's I've heard him talk about it before, how it was weird because he's a young man. Junior's a young man. And the doctor's coming out and telling him, well, your father didn't make it. You know, that's 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 crazy because to them, their dad was the toughest man alive, you know, mm-hmm. and he just had this friendly little, you know, amateur style wrestling match after after the matches at the house. And then he dies of a heart attack. So but but regardless, we're not talking about we're not talking about we'll, we'll talk more about that. When we talk about the history of Texas wrestling. But yeah. yeah, but but Harley was the guy that they knew neither Jack nor Junior were going to cross. And that right. is why Harley was chosen. So you're exactly right. Right. Now, when Harley won the belt from Junior, uh, he was a transitional champion. So this is what goes back to what I was saying before about him not being the first choice. They're originally going to no. put it on Jack. So they chose Harley to do it. The old-fashioned way. Again, I know I said this term earlier before, but managing with brass balls. But, you know, it's just it's how it was in those mm-hmm. days. So you have uh, to understand in that era, which is this is not a knock on Ric Flair by any stretch of the imagination. Rick was probably the first long-term champion that the NWA board agreed on. that didn't have a, a, a well-known and highly reputed um, reputation as either a legit like street fighter tough guy or shooter. It was vastly important that that be a part of who your touring world champion was, because as much as fans nowadays try to dissect the entire Montreal screw job and act like it was a big deal, 
that crap happened all the time back in the day, all oh, yeah. the time, uh, with regional titles, uh, with just big, big everything. And so the NWA board realized we can't ha- we can't put ourselves in a position where that's going to happen to our champion. So the champion was always a guy who could take care of himself if somebody tried to go into business for themselves. And, you know, it, it was that was just a that was legitimately if you had a if you were on the board and you had like a checklist of things that a wrestler must be must be to be the world champion. That was one of the first things that was on the list you had to check off was can handle himself if someone tries to go into business for them. Harley was definitely fit that. <laughs> and in the case of Danny Hodge, somebody who could take care of himself against somebody twice his size. You know? <laughs> right. Well, he was a junior heavyweight champion. So, that, <laughs> yeah. but, but yeah, once again, at that time, there were only two belts that were controlled by the board, the, the, the junior heavyweight and the heavyweight. And if you go back and look at all the champions from the inception of the NWA until the early eighties, all the world champions and all the world junior heavyweight champions were legit badasses that could take care of themselves. You know, these were guys that you were going to really, really think twice about trying to screw over, if you know what I mean. So, like I said, race was a transitional champion because the board felt that Jack Briscoe should be the champion. So Harley dropped to Jack two months later. They, they basically gave Harley enough of a run to give him some credible wins because I think had Harley dropped it to Jack a few days later, it probably just would not have been as convincing of a run. You know, I think they wanted to give at least some credibility to to right. Harley because otherwise you, you have Jack beats the guy that beat Dory, who was the guy Jack was trying to beat for the last two years. Right. You know? yeah, and, and, and you have to you have to remember two things. One, they both have to deal with the WWWF which by that point had broken off from the NWA, even though they had still working relationships with them. And Vince Sr. was well-respected by the other members of the NWA and would often call him in for advice when, or, you know, or to break a tie when there were decisions that needed to be made. Um, that was how well he was respected. But if you look at Bruno's run, who would have been the other world champion at the time, remember, there were transitional champions in Ivan Koloff and Stan Stasiak at this time. But they didn't give Stan or Ivan the long, a little bit of a run like they like the NWA gave Harley. They almost immediately dropped it to somebody else. You know, with Ivan, it was he dropped it to um, Pedro, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it was. And then and then Stan dropped it to uh, Bob Backlund, right? I actually I think Bob beat Superstar. I think it was right, 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 right. right. I think you're right. You're right. Yeah, I think, right. I think it was Stan beat Pedro, and then. Uh, they dropped. Bruno they, beat, he did, Bruno beat him to get it back. That's right. Right. Exactly. Because right. you know they just did not do baby baby matches in the Northeast at the time. So right. so this is. I don't think it was because they were trying to be different than what Vince Senior was doing. Uh, I don't think that was a conscious decision by the NWA board, but it was different. Yeah. You know. It, yeah. Well. Well, I think the way the McMahon's work. And, you know, you go all the way back to the days of Bruno, and they even did it during the days of Hogan. The McMahons tended to promote a babyface world champion, whereas the rest of the territories booked a heel champion and the, yes, the story of the hero battling uphill. So I think that's right. why you saw differences like this. Well, we got a we got a heel champion, so we need somebody. We need to give him a few wins, and then we tell the story all over again with, with the chase. Right, and here's 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 a part of the reason why I think that happened. This is just my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll use Harley as an example because it was just one territory. Now, granted, it had the biggest, or least not the biggest, but the most well-known arena in the country in Madison Square Garden. You could do what 
what the McMahons did, which was the monster of the month. You bring in the big dude or the, or the scary heel who's a threat to your babyface champion, whether it's Bruno or Pedro or Hogan or Backlund. Doesn't matter. You pick any of them because they were all your long-term champs for, what, 30 years in the company. Um, and then you, you, know, you could tell that kind of story in just one territory. Whereas the NWA champion, like when Harley held the belt, was a legitimate world champion. He was traveling around from territory to territory, defending the belt with the essential, his job being go in, make the local guy look good, make those fans believe that their guy was just that close to beating the world champion, but still come out with the belt and then mm-hmm. go on to the next territory and do it again. And of course it was, it was, it was, um, advantageous to the local promoters of the territories because having the world type, the world champion meant you pop the house, you know, it, it, it could, it could really, really affect the gate. So, uh, it's hard to pull that off with a true babyface champion. You know, that's just why I think the NWA champion was always a straight up heel like Harley, or at least a, a, a quasi tweener like Jack Briscoe or like Luthez, because when you came into a territory, we'll use, it doesn't matter. We'll pick any tier. We'll say Los Angeles territory, the LaBelle's territory. Mm-hmm. They might get the world champion Harley race three times in one calendar year. You know, they'll get one, like maybe like late early spring, one in the midsummer, and they'll get them again, uh, you know, around late fall, mid to late fall. They're probably going to want to put different guys up against him for the, the three days to a week. He's in Los Angeles. It's much easier to have a heel heel match than it is to have a baby baby match. Mm-hmm. Are you follow where I'm going with that logic? Oh, yeah. If I am thinking right here, the crowd might say, well, yeah, this is this is a bad guy, but he's our bad guy, and we're going to back him instead of the other guy's bad guy. Exactly. I mean, we saw that a lot here in the Carolinas with Flair being our top guy most of the time. Well, Flair's an asshole, but he's our asshole. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was kind of our, our mentality. And so... So you and that's why I think a guy like Harley, on top of the toughness, on top of the the credibility he brought to the title, he was a great heel. And so it did not matter whether he went against another heel or a babyface; he could go into any territory, and whether he was fighting their top heel or top babyface, he was still going to get booed and can make the other guy look great and just get by on the skin of his teeth, but win cleanly and have the fans when he left the territory believing, man, just if they'd had you know. One move or two more minutes, our guy would have beat Harley Race. And Mm -hmm. he was really, really good. He's one of the best at that. That's why he won the title eight times. You know, (laughs) it wasn't just because he was tough, it was because he was so damn good at that. And, and, but that, but we've never, we've talked at length before about the Northeast being a babyface territory and everybody else being a, a heel territory. I've never broke down as to why that was. And so I thought, since Harley was a multi-time champion, this is as good a time as any to talk about why I think that was. And I, you said you do understand that that my explanation it makes sense to you, right? Right, absolutely, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry yeah. I didn't want to get off, <laughs> but I mean, we are talking about Harley Race, and, and Harley was synonymous with the NWA title in the 1970s, so it may just makes sense to talk about one of the reasons why Harley was the guy in the 70s. That was why, because he was a great heel, and right. why heel champions worked. You know? Yeah, yeah. He arguably is the best person to talk about this. The other one being being Flair, I think. You know about that traveling right. world champion and the local hero being that close to uh, to winning. So right, okay. Fez is really the only other guy that probably could talk the same way that those two guys could because they're all right. multi time world. Maybe Dusty, Dusty on it three times. You know, right, right. And I guess one of the other ironies with 
Harley, I meant to say this earlier, is a lot of these world champions, certainly the old school type champions, they were very good in the background of amateur wrestling. And I don't think Harley was. He just was a badass. Like I said, he was. they were either legit shooters or they were just badasses. And Harley was the badass type. You know, When you think about all the other champions before and after him, they, they, like you said, they were either flamboyant like Flair or Dusty, or they had legitimate shooter backgrounds. Dory Jr., Jack Briscoe, Pat O'Connor, uh, you know, uh, Luthez. Mm-hmm. He didn't have that. He wasn't, Harley wasn't super flamboyant and he wasn't a, he didn't have a, a, an amateur background, but he was tough as nails. Yeah. Another one that, uh, I'll, I'll say this name and then we'll get back to Harley, but one I've always wanted to, research on and maybe do a show on is Orville Brown, the first NWA mm-hmm. champion. I think, you know, I think his history fits that as well. So yeah, I'll, I'll um, throw another name in there for you. Uh, Oklahoma Dick Hutton. Okay. Yeah. Boring is a bowl. Boring is an o- a bowl of oatmeal. Really got over, but he was handpicked by Luthez to be, to be a guy that was going to beat him and hold the belt for a while simply because he was a legitimate badass at Oklahoma as an amateur wrestler. So mm-hmm. he brought that legitimacy, and the the board was willing to okay it because they realized uh, he was badass enough to hold on to it until they decided to put it back on Lou. Right. So yeah, that happened all the time back then. I mean, Oklahoma, right. Oklahoma Dick Hutton was not was not exciting wrestler. He did not draw well, but Lou picked him because of his legitimate amateur background, and the fans bought it because of his legitimate amateur background, and he was badass enough to make sure that he didn't get double until Lou took it back from him. Mm-hmm. Right. Make makes sense. So anyway, Jack Briscoe has that, I think he had about a year or two run, and there's a famous story about how Jack Briscoe was in Florida and then just phoned the office and said, uh, I'm done. I'm, you know? I'm done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, ain't le- I ain't leaving Florida again, guys. And he said either, I don't care who it is. He said, Harley, you can send, you can send Junior. I'm not, I'm, I'm not leaving the state again. But whoever you want to win the belt, so they sent Harley. <laughs> right. Right. And uh, actually, I think it was Terry Funk that beat Terry. Uh, that beat Jack. Yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's right. They did. They sent Terry. That's right. Yeah. They did. They sent Terry. Yeah, because I believe it was Dave Meltzer that I was listening talk about Harley. And he said around this time, it goes back to that uh, committee thing that we were talking about, that they wanted it to be either Terry or Harley. And Terry won the vote by one vote. So they agreed then at that time, it's like, okay, well, Terry will have the run, but Harley's going to be the one that beats him. And that's uh, what happened over the course of the next few years. And I think, yeah, I think Terry had about a one-year run with the belt, if I remember right. Right, right. It, it wasn't as long as Dory's, but it was a respectable run. And that's another thing people need to remember, too, about when Harley got his first title from beating Junior. Junior had been the world champion like four or five years at that point. Right, and I, I've heard people joke. Part of the reason why was he was one of the few guys in the business that didn't didn't mind the traveling that was involved. Mm-hmm. A lot of guys are like are like Jack. I think I think Pat O'Connor was like that too. They just after about six months, they realized, man, this is a lot of work. I'm tired of doing this. <laughs> Never see my family. I'm a, I'm in a different town. You know, every other night, flying everywhere. To heck with this. Yeah, if you're a single guy, it's a great life. But if you're trying to have a family, sucks. Well, yeah, yeah. So. Flash forward to uh, actually four years, and Harley beat Terry Funk. That was his second reign, and this is the reign that people remember about Harley. This is the reign that goes down in the history books because it was actually about three reigns because he lost the belt to Giant Baba twice uh, in tours of Japan, and that was 
business. I mean, that was he went in Land. knowing he was going to lose to Baba, and then Baba would lose to him on on Harley's way out. Right. Uh, so he did that twice. They did the thing with Tommy Rich. We could talk about that in a minute with with Tommy Rich, but okay. With the exception of those three losses, and each one of those reigns were less than a week. You know, you know, it was like a couple days at a time, and then Harley would get it back. So you effectively have minus a couple days total without the belt. You have essentially a four to five year reign that Harley had the entire latter part of the 1970s up to about 80 or 81 was all part of that, that big second to fourth reign that Harley had. I thought Dusty beat him for the belt in like 78 or 79. Uh, that may have been the case, but it, it was another one of those cases where he didn't have the belt for long. No, and a lot of people ask about that. I heard Dave Meltzer talk about it. He he described it better than I could. This is no disrespect to the dream. I think anybody listens to our show know how much both of us love the dream. Uh, remember when I was talking about all those things you needed to check off to be a gr- effective NWA champion? Mm-hmm. Dusty was a babyface, so th- there's an there's an X against him. He wasn't not that Dusty was 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 a was a wussy. He wasn't. But was he? Did he have a great amateur shooter background? No. Was he known for being a badass tough guy like Harley? No. So there's another X against him, you know. And he wasn't an in-ring technician like any, including Harley, like all these guys were talking about. You know, mm-hmm. he wasn't Pat O'Connor or or Gene Kaniski or or Jack Briscoe. He was a, a he was a great talker who bled well and knew how to mm-hmm. knew how to have athletic brawls with high spots mixed in. So he just was not anything that they that they were looking for in a traveling world champion. And I know Dusty hated probably hated to hear that, but it it was what it was. Right. I mean, it doesn't mean that he wasn't a drawing card, but once again back to what I saw earlier, you gotta remember this is Dusty's runs after Dusty's turned babyface and he never turned heel again except for that little joke of a, when he joined the NWO there, you know, for a little while in WCW. So he was the babyface's babyface. How in the heck you're very limited as a booker when you when your traveling world champion comes in and he's the top babyface in the world. You can only book your top heel against him, can't you? Right. If it's his second go around in the territory that year, you've already spent your your top heel. Now you're going to feed him a mid card heel. See my point? Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you actually brought up Dusty because I I can't believe I completely forgot this this story. But uh, we can we can tell here if I recall correctly. When Dusty won that first title, uh, again, it was one of those uh, less than a week, you know, maybe, you know, a breath of fresh air, you might say. That might not be the best Mm -hmm. way to put it. But there was the angle that they did where I believe it was Terry Funk attacked Dusty and broke his arm. So Dusty, in storyline, was wrestling with a broken arm, and that's what got uh, Harley the title back. Right. And you hear all the time about the Dusty finish, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the first times I remember hearing about the Dusty finish is when Dusty, quote unquote, won the world title from Harley Race and St. Pete at the Bayfront Center, which he, he walked out the ring with the belt and they had, you know, where the kids rushed the ring to be with their hero and the baby faces carried Dusty out triumphant on their shoulders. And then the next week on TV, he starts out with Gordon Soley having to explain that, no, the referee that got hit actually saw what happened, saw that Dusty had his feet on the ropes and and so the change didn't happen, and they put, they had to get the belt back to Harley. Right. So, and that was in '78, I think. So, a full five, you know, a full what eight years, seven years before the, the famous Dusty finish at Starcade '85. <laughs> right. Yeah. So anyway, well, I do want to talk about Tommy Rich because, like we said, there's there's nothing to the Baba 
victories and the and the Baba mm-hmm. run with the belt because it was just oh. it was it was doing business. Right now, let me before we get on to Tommy. There's two things I wanted to bring up. I I don't I mm-hmm. just remembered them. That you know five and a year run you're talking about where he did the little quick switches with Baba and the little short run for Dusty. As a guy who grew up in the Carolinas, now I wasn't in Carolina at the time. I was in Denver, so I was getting mostly AWA. But my family lived here, so I get did get to see a little bit of Mid Atlantic. He was what the world's champion was to us here in the Carolinas. You know, he came into the territory a lot as the champion. So if you were to ask a certain segment of fans in the Carolinas from that era, name who were the top wrestlers when you were growing up. Well, they're going to say Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel because you've heard us talk about how legend and storied that that feud was here. Blackjack's going to be thrown out there. Uh, Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat because they're both starting their career and, and starting their great matches. But Harley's the other one they're going to throw in, and he wasn't even based here to Carolinas because he was the champion coming in all the time. Makes sense. Uh, Makes sense. Yeah. So, but the other thing too is in that in that same time frame, somewhere between I can't remember the exact date, but it's somewhere between like seventy six and eighty one, Harley Race body slammed Andre the Giant. I can't remember yes. where it was. And so, contrary to what Vince wants you to believe, the first time Andre had been slammed was Hogan at WrestleMania three. Like ten years before that, Harley had slammed Andre. And my understanding and, of how Andre thought is it was a real show of respect if Andre let you slam him. Because, of course, I don't know mm-hmm. from personal experience, obviously uh, you know, but a slam, a lot of it is on the person taking it. Not It's yes. not just one person lifting up the other guy. There's a, there's a weight shifting thing that goes on. It's a lot of trust and co- cooperation involved in, in, in an effective body slam where, where neither guy gets hurt. And, and here's the thing. Another move people don't use a lot anymore, but also requires a lot of just strength, you know, because I, I agree with what Kevin Nash said one time. Yes, we're cooperating with each other when, when you body slam me, but Andre was still 400 and something pounds and he ain't got no wires attached to him. Harley had to be a strong man to be able to do it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, one of the moves that Harley used that is not used much anymore was the old delayed vertical suplex. Oh, yes. where you pick him up for a vertical and you hold him in place. He did yeah. that multiple times to Andre and to Giant Baba. Think about that. Wow. Yeah. We're, and for those who might not know, we're, we're talking probably the, the most famous wrestler of the recent generation to do that was probably Davey Boy Smith, British Bulldog. Right. 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 And so you're, you're talking, I mean, Baba is not as heavy as Andre, but he's as tall. He's what, 6'9", six, 6'10"? Six, yeah, and when you're that tall, that's a different center of gravity to work with than a shorter person. And Baba was well over 300 pounds. He was like what, 350 pounds probably. So Harley didn't look it because he was never a weightlifter guy, you know, but brother was strong. I mean, legit strong. You're not delay vertical suplexing uh, Andre and giant Baba. I don't care how much they're helping you out unless you you got something underneath that, if you know what I mean, you know? <laughs> yeah, especially since the whole vertical part of the suplex, the the person taking the move essentially does a headstand or a handstand. But you're having to hold all that weight. Yeah, all that 400 or 300 pounds is all on your shoulders at, at, at one point there. Yep. And, and yes, I did motion with my hands up in the air, even though nobody can see me do it but here i'm explaining a suplex i'm doing the motions to nobody <laughs> <laughs> to, to thin air in your in your studio <laughs> but that, that i just wanted to bring that up to let people know harley may not look he didn't have the body of the road warriors or lex luger or the rock but did not change the fact he was a super strong dude make no bones about it 
Now, let's get back to Tommy Rich here, because I've heard so many stories over the years about this. I've heard that it was a mistake. I've heard that Harley forgot to kick out, or there was a miscommunication or something like that. But I've also heard that it was a ploy of sorts to get friction among the Georgia promoters and such, because we're talking, it's around the time I think Jim Barnett was promoting as well, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, this so, I, I want to remember yeah. when did Ray Gunkel die? It was around that time. So you're having the you had the Great War in Atlanta with the schism, where you know his his wife Ann Gunkel took over one office and Oldie broke away and had another office. You know, Atlanta for a long time had always been a, a, a fairly um, and once again for those that don't know, we've explained this before in past episodes. When you talk to territories, often the main city or the city where the where where the the corporate offices were based would be what wrestlers would call that territory. To the fans, it would be Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. To the boys in the business, it was Charlotte. To the fans, it was Georgia Championship Wrestling. To the boys, it was Atlanta. To the to the fans, it was the WWWF. To the boys, it was New York. Okay, but so just I thought I needed to explain that. So Atlanta right. was always a place, was always a territory that was crazy like that. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, no worries. So – I, I am curious uh, if you've heard a different story from that, because I would tend to believe, given the history of wrestling and the underhanded tactics that can happen, I wouldn't be surprised if it was that kind of power play, where it was to start that friction and Harley just knew to drop it later. Or like you said about with uh, uh, Jack, that he knew to drop it because if he tried to keep it, Harley would you know, make it lose it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I've, I've much like you, even being inside the business and talking to old timers, some of whom were actually there in that territory when it happened. I, I haven't really gotten a straight answer either. Uh, I, I, here's what I know and what I think happened. So when I get to the point where it's pure speculation on my part, I'll let y'all know. I know this Tommy Rich as a baby face in 1981 in Atlanta was as over as any baby face I have ever known in the history of the business. And yes, I'm including the Rock and Stone Cold when I say that. Yes, he was the epitome of white meat baby face. Yes, yes. He, he had no body. He wasn't the best looking guy, but he was young and he cut that good old boy promo that those fans in Georgia could relate to. And he had the bleach blonde hair and he bled like crazy and he sold good. And so the girls were into him and the guys, you know, kind of felt sorry for him. And he was, uh, you, I just can't emphasize how over Tommy Rich was, not worldwide, but in, in the Georgia territory in 1981. He was show over as a baby face. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, that's what I know. Uh, with him winning the world title, with that being said, I understand why people c- could, who don't under, especially the ones that don't understand the territory system, could kind of go, ah, it makes sense. He was really, really over. But when you put into to, um, consideration what I was talking about, about what, what were the checklist of things a world champion needed to be, seriously doubt that, the, that, that I think at the time would have been Bob Geiger would have been the president, that the office approved that change. Because Tommy was a regional star only in one territory, and he was a white meat baby face. He was not going to be effective going, going around the horn. Uh, I mean, it's it's well-known fact that Jim Barnett it was an openly gay man. There have been rumors forever that he was physically attracted to Tommy Rich and that maybe Tommy got the thing because of maybe sexual favors. I don't believe that, personally. But I do think Jim Barnett wanted to see him as the world champion for a multitude of reasons. He he liked him. 
he he wanted to be able to say that the his top baby face was the world champion. There was a lot of reasons, both personal and professional, why Jim Barnett would want Tommy Rich to be the world champion. With that being said, here comes the massive speculation on my side. The booker at the time for Georgia was Buck Robley, Colonel Buck Robley. A name that kind of gets forgotten at the time, a lot of people don't know about. But Buck Robley was the booker in Georgia when this title change happened. He was also the booker for Bill Watts in Mid-South when they did the Freebirds blinding junkyard dog angle and some of the early junkyard dog on top run. So that gives you an idea what kind of booker he was. You know, he was a guy who was old school Southern style wrestling booker who you get tons of heat on your heels on television and have them leave baby faces bloody. So the fans would come to the buildings to see the baby faces get their revenge. Pretty simple, right? Mm-hmm. I think once again, here's where speculation comes in. Ladies and gentlemen, I think Jim Barnett might've even gone to the office and said, Hey, I want to put the belt on Tommy rich to which the office gave it resounding. No, Jim. Then Jim, went to Buck Robley as his booker and said, I want you to book Tommy to go over on Harley tonight. Cause it was in, I believe Augusta, Georgia is where the title switch happened. I believe I could be wrong. Buck said, okay, Buck's not going to question what his booker tells him. Or the, the booker's not going to question what the promoter tells him. Cause he knows the promoter's the one who's talking to the office in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. He books it. He goes to Harley and Harley agrees. Why? Because Harley's professional, you know, yeah, it's not like they were asking him to lose to a, a mid card, right, or, or lower, or comedy guy, or something like that. Right, they're asking they're asking him to lose the top babyface. I also think, once again, speculation on my part, ladies and gentlemen, Harley's thinking in his mind of to the Baba switches you just talked about. Okay, they just want me to drop it to the kid tonight, and before I leave the territory, they're going to have him drop it back to me. I get it. They just want me to give the kid mm-hmm. the rub. That's what I'm thinking. That Harley's thinking because Harley also knows. And this is not speculation on my part, uh, even though it, it is speculation. But trust me, it's not speculation. Harley knows if I really want to beat this kid, not going to be a problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I can get the belt back if I want. <laughs> and so that happens. And then three days later, Tommy drops it back. Now, what happens in those three days? I don't know. I, I obviously this is before the Internet, but I am sure word got back to San, St. Louis and Bob Geigel about the change before now, whether he called up Jim Barnett or Buck Robley or both said, you're going to put the belt back on him or Harley made the phone call and said, Hey, I, I did the honors. Uh, I, I, is, is that what you wanted? And they're like, no, it wasn't Harley. You better get the belt back. I don't know how that went down. There's a, a million different scenarios, but in my opinion, the word got back to, to the office and the office got back to them and the switch went back three days later. So that's just total speculation on Crazy Train's part, that the original one was planned but not authorized by the office. Harley being professional, looking at it, agreed to it, did it with the full knowledge or at least thinking they were going to have him drop it back to him. And if they didn't, he would take it anyways, which they did. And, and Tommy, not being a, a stupid guy, did the honors three nights later. Does that scenario make sense to you or sound like possible at all? I think it's very plausible. You know, it's a, it's one of those things. It may sound cliché to say it, but we may not ever know the full story because the people right. that would have made the biggest decisions in that time are either not with us or just probably aren't going to comment on it at all. Well, Bob Goggle's dead. Buck Robley's dead. Jim Barnett's dead, and now Harley Race is dead. So there's four of the five <laughs> major components we're talking about right there. 
Tommy, I don't know what Tommy would say if you asked him anyways. And I've worked shows with Tommy. I like Tommy. I've never, I never asked him, you know, I figured that would be rude. He's former world champion. That's all I need to know. So now during this run between 77, 78 and, and 81 here, there actually were matches promoted that happened. And this is going back to the uh, appreciation for Vince Sr. that everybody had. Harley would actually have matches against the WWE champion or the WWF champion at the time and then AWA champion. So they were, were title for title matches against Superstar Graham and Bob Backlund during this time. And there was one and in Nick the AWA with, yeah, with Nick Bockwinkle. Now, of course, anybody who knows the history or understands the basics at that time, there's not going to be anybody who's going to hold the NWA and WWF titles at the same time because they're different promotions. The closest you get to that, I think, as far as different promotions go, was Buddy Rogers because he went to New York as the NWA champion. That was just a case of him leaving one territory for another. And I think when the AWA was formed, they recognized somebody else as the the champion. It might have even might have even been Pat O'Connor, like we were talking about before. Uh, it might have been. Yeah, on the AWA thing, I could be wrong, but I believe that the AWA NWA title versus title matches with Bockwinkle and Harley actually didn't actually happen in Minneapolis. I think that might have happened in Houston at the time. Even though Paul Bosch was running Houston, I think Nick was like a minority owner in the territory because Paul had gotten tired of working with the NWA, but he still wanted to have a world champion come into his territory and defend a world title. Thus, he brought in Nick, and Nick bought into the territory. And maybe he, it happened as a favor to Nick. I don't know. But I'm, I'm, for some reason, I remember seeing that at some time. I could be wrong, ladies and gentlemen. So Harley's dominance, you might say, finally came to an end in 81 because he had dropped the belt to Dusty, and this would be the reign that Dusty had that would transition to Flair. I don't think Harley won the belt again until 83 to lead in right. the Starcade, and, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment here. That was the longest span of time, essentially, between those two, those final two runs, uh, not counting the eighth run that Harley had without the belt. So, right. You know, and by that point, you know, Harley had bought into the Kansas City or the Central States territory. He was part owner with Bob Geigel. So, I'll, I'll, you know, even though we're talking 83, the writing was on the wall with where Vince Jr. was going to go. And part of the reason that he agreed to drop the belt to Ric Flair at 83 amongst other reasons was by Harley's own words, he was going to go back to Kansas city and protect his city and his territory. Yeah. Cause he knew Vince, the storm that was Vince McMahon was coming. Right. And speaking of Vince, uh, I don't think we can tell the story of Harley race without bringing this up. Now right. I think the story may have changed a little bit because every time I had heard it, except for a couple days ago, it ended amicably. But what, Vince McMahon did, because he knew of Starcade coming up, he wanted to do something that effectively, I think he uh, did with Hogan for, for the AWA, which is he wanted Harley to no-show Starcade, work for him in New York, and there he would be recognized as the NWA champion, uh, even though it was a different promotion. And the way it went is Vince kind of wined and dined Harley for a while. You know, they had their talk, and Harley said he was going to think about it, went to the bathroom, and Vince, being Vince McMahon, 
basically followed Harley into the bathroom and wanted his mm-hmm. answer. And I think you tell this, the story of the dialogue a little bit better than me, Train. So if you could, yeah. your, how you heard this conversation going. Yeah, let me back up a little bit so people understand, because I remember this vividly being a fan here in the Carolinas. The angle leading into this, and, and, and Seth has a one of the more famous promos that Harley cut for this angle, was that Harley, as the heel champion, did not want to be dictated to him by the NWA board, who he was going to defend the title against and where he was going to defend it. And the storyline was he was going he was going to book himself in Kansas City the, on Thanksgiving night of 1983 because he wasn't going to be forced to go to Green to Greensboro. And as the story got on, he got so frustrated with Flair dogging him that he put out a twenty five thousand dollar bounty on Flair for anybody to take Flair out of wrestling to injure him. Mm-hmm. And both Dick Slater and Bob Orton Jr., Randy Orton's father, were being portrayed as baby faces and friends of Ric Flair on the television here in the Carolinas. They turned on Flair and gave him a Spike Paul driver and took the money from Harley. And um, then they did an injury angle with Flair where you know they interviewed him at home in a neck brace and the doctors weren't sure. And then he he made his miraculous comeback right, you know, like a month or so so, so before to lead to him getting what he wanted, which was not only the, the, the title switch <clears throat> or not only the title match in Greensboro at Starcade, but also in a cage, which was also a big thing because the world title had never been uh, won or even defended, I think, at that point in a cage match because back to what we talked about earlier, Harley was a wrestler's wrestler. Cage matches were blow off for feuds, for blood feuds. They were a gimmick match. They weren't pure wrestling, you know? And, um, so it was kind of weird. And, 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 uh, that was even part of the angle. Harley's like, you're trying to make me wrestle your kind of match. You know, I'm the champion. I should be dictating. But regardless, that's the whole feud is that Harley is threatening to no show on television, the show, because he's not going to be dictated to. So the fact that Vince wants to convince him to no show Actually fits into the angle if he does it right, <laughs> uh, but but you're right. He he flew him up to New York the Wednesday because th- at the time we've talked about before here on Classic Wrestling Memories, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving and Christmas, especially down here in the South, and then later on the Fourth of July weekend would become big drawing days for wrestling for the rest for the territories. Um, and was you know even though Starcade had started in 1983, what we're talking about in Greensboro. Thanksgiving night in Greensboro was legendary. It had been a, one of the top drawing cards every year annually for the Crockett promotion going back to the 60s. You know, they always had a big wrestling card on Thanksgiving night in Greensboro. And um, so the Wednesday before that, I mean, the day before Thanksgiving is when Vince flies him up there and does the whining and dining. And like you said, Harley said, let me think about it uh, and excuse himself to the restroom. And Vince being Vince followed him in. My understanding is that it was one of those setups, and all the all the ladies and on our on our our listeners, I apologize. The men will understand this, but on the wall that the urinals are mounted on are mirrors. I'm sure you've seen that type setup before in in, mm-hmm. in public restrooms, right? Yep. And Harley's at the urinal doing his business, and Vince comes over and a couple a couple urinals down. Doing his business. So they're both, they can see each other, but it's, they're looking in the mirror. They're not looking at each other, you know? And Vince, hey, pal, have you thought about, thought about my offer? 
And and you know that's that's my best Vince impression. Sorry, let me do a little bit better. Hey, pal, you heard her. You're, what are you mm-hmm. thought about the offer there, Harley? And Harley, you know, kind of looks at the mirror and says, "Vince, what do you see?" And Vince says, "Well, I I see the, the world champion Harley Race." And Harley says, "You know what, Vince? I see the same thing, and I'm gonna have to see it tomorrow morning when I wake up too." To which Vince replies, "I just got my answer. Best of luck to you. Thank you for listening to my offer." That right. was that. And. I I can't help but think that that is probably the truth because there could be some uh what what's the word uh where something gets exaggerated or added to over time but I, I, <laughs> yeah the, the Mandela effect <laughs> right where you but, remember something differently than what it really was <laughs> right but the, there actually is a version of the story that had Vince try to attack Harley or try to tackle him or something to that effect and bull crap Vince yeah. is not that stupid. Right. Vince is not that stupid. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, Vince is not a shooter and all that. Plus, I think at this time he hadn't become as physically big as he did during uh, the 80s. So I think I think that sounds more like like Vince, because he can. I've heard so many times that if you can look Vince McMahon in the eye, say what you feel, he's going to respect that, you know. Right. And the thing of it is with Harley, where Harley is concerned, Harley knew when the board came to him and said, we, we're we going with Flair. He's our next guy, but we want you to be the guy he beats for that rub. In other words, they're telling Harley, we want you to pass the torch. And when they lay out to him how they want to do this with him beating Flair for the belt to lead into Starcade, Harley was totally for that because he was a big fan of Flair's. You know, he had he had wrestled Flair many, many times. Like I was talking about earlier, Flair was one of the top guys here in the Carolinas. So when Harley would come in here to the Carolinas as the NWA traveling world champion, one of the guys he often feuded with was Ric Flair. They had had matches, many matches. I mean, back at I, I, Harley had said it was like 78 or 79. He, he's before they wrestled at Starcade 83. Harley said he had probably had a thousand one hour draws of Flair already, you know, already mm-hmm. before they had that match. Right. And and to make matters worse, this often gets left out. Um, there was a, a freak early, late fall, early winter snowstorm here in the Carolinas that started that Thanksgiving morning. Now, even though you're from Chicago, you understand when it snows here in the Carolinas, we shut the states down. <laughs> right. We just we don't have the equipment for snow for moving snow. Uh, it did not affect the gate. It was down a little bit, but people, as as the roads got a little better, they they started to trickle into the building. But because of the snow, it delayed Harley's flight from New York down here to Greensboro. So when the show starts and Harley's not there, and of course it's wrestling. Words already got out. The rumor is that that Harley's been flown to New York to talk to Vince, and Harley's not there yet. Well, the reason he wasn't there was because his flight was delayed because of the snow. But you can imagine how how nervous Ric Flair and the Crockett's are getting at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. But when Harley finally gets to the building a few minutes after the show starts, he walks straight into Ric Flair's locker room, sits down, shakes Rick's hand, and looks at him and says, I'm here for you, kid. And Harley maintained until the day he died, uh, that was the biggest reason why he told Vince McMahon no. He had no loyalty to the Crockett's. He really didn't even have any loyalty to the NWA, but he had given his word to Ric Flair, and that's why he did it. I think that speaks to what kind of man Harley Race was. I agree, yeah. There is a Flair, actually a couple of them, documentary DVDs for WWE. 
I think I have them both. It's been a while since I've watched them again. But Harley is quoted in this documentary as saying, before too long, you know, he liked Rick right off the bat, but he said, before too long, I knew this man was going to be my replacement. So he knew that that day, that Thanksgiving night in 83 was coming years before it happened. He knew. You could say that, yeah. There are a lot of stories you hear about Harley being a man's man. That, to me, is probably the one that says, uh, you know, back in the day when a man's handshake was as good as a signed contract. I think that was very true of Harley Race. He shook your hand. You, he gave you his word. That was it. Right. Now, we teased it earlier, so I'm going to play it now because it is likely one of, if not the most famous promo Harley cut. And it is that bounty on Ric Flair that eventually led to Starcade. One of the things I like pointing out in this is putting out the bounty and all that and having somebody do it. I think the whole idea behind that is the average fan who's at least got half a brain is going to say, well, why isn't he doing it himself and save himself $25,000? But that's what heels do. Well, what I found fascinating about it was two things. One, obviously you're, our, our listeners are only going to get the audio, but it is Harley Race in a suit with that awesome afro and, and you know mutton chop connected mustache look he had in that era with an actual Halliburton briefcase sta- sitting on a podium with the old dome globe NWA heavyweight belt inside it surrounded by what was legitimately to look like to me $25,000 of real bills. Not like you see today where it's, it's obvious Vince is using a prop. You know, he's using a, a bunch of bundles with like a hundred on top, but the rest is no. This did not like real money bundles to you too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know that trick where there's $100 bill and 99 $1 bills. Right. This looked like it was legitimately somebody went down to the Crockett's bank at Crockett's office people and let's say we need $25,000 in, 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 in small bills, and they gave it to him. They put it in the house. I think they did that for this promo. And two, you'll hear him list off the name of a bunch of wrestlers, challenging them to take the, take the money, to, to, to accept the bounty. He would only lists heels. He lists baby faces as well. So he's literally throwing out the challenge to anybody who's willing to take up the money. But anyway, go ahead and play it, Seth. It's, it's an incredible promo. I didn't think that there was anything on the face of the earth that would ever push me to do what I'm going to do right now. But, Flair, you have pushed me as far as you're going to push. Right here is $25,000. And it goes to any human being that can eliminate Ric Flair from wrestling. Take a look at it, Paul Jones, you and your whole entourage of people, Dick Slater, Kabuki, the names, the list, it goes on and on. Any human being that can eliminate Ric Flair for me has got $25,000 cash. I'll give it to any living human being. Jack Briscoe, you are world's champion. You took the belt from me. You're the man. You can do it. It's here for you. Come and get it, please. Somebody take the damn money. I want rid of Flair. I do kind of get a chuckle, that awkward pause before he says kabuki. I think he had a brain fart, and it just took him a second. Okay, who all's in this territory? <laughs> <laughs> but that's how good a promo was. He covered it, you know? 
Well, of course, nowadays with all these cryptid promos, they would have the guys would have gotten lost. But back then, as the champion, Harley was a hell of a promo. You know, for all his toughness and believability in the ring, you cannot sleep on the fact that Harley Race was an incredible promo. And we've talked a million times on all the wrestling podcasts, going back to the A one days. Back then, you part of being a top guy was being able to talk people into the building. That promo talked people into the building. They were willing to go see live shows to see, is somebody actually going to take Harley Race's bounty and, and hurt Ric Flair? But for curiosity's sake, while you were playing that, I looked up the inflation calculator, Seth. Mm-hmm. If in 1983, I purchased an item for $25,000, then in 2019, that same item would cost $64,292.92. So, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> just to put, put it in perspective for what that's worth nowadays. So, I mean, $25,000 today is nothing to sniff at. Back then, it really wasn't that stiff at. I, I digress. And that leads us to the infamous Starcade cage match. We actually covered Starcade in its entirety in our first ever Classic Wrestling Memories, where we had Mike Mooneyham on as, as a guest. So if you want to go back and learn about Starcade, you can go back to our very first show. So after Harley lost the belt, I think he kind of knew going back to how good he was at understanding uh, the basics of the biz. He, he knew he probably was not going to get any more high-profile title runs. I think he knew that his time was was coming to an end. So after that event, Harley went back to AWA with uh, Vern Gagne. And I don't know how often he appeared, but he did have matches with Kurt Hennig. You know, Larry Hennig's son might be the reason why he went up there because of probably friendship with Larry. But he wrestled a lot of the top baby faces in the AWA and uh, obviously didn't win the AWA title. But the last run that he had really as a wrestler, like full time, was, of course, when he went to WWE in mid-1986. Because he was one of those guys, like you were talking about before, about how seriously he took himself. And even back in the 80s, the WWF was looked at as being like a cartoon or a circus or something like that. It wasn't real wrestling. So guys, it liked- was the, it was the antithesis of everything Harley race was and right. had been for years. Now, before you get into that run, I think it's important because we've talked about, he had eight runs. And if you're doing the countdown as we're talking about his career, well, you guys only talked about seven. Where was the eighth run? Um, very often back in those days when you had a traveling world champion, um, when he would drop the belt to somebody, the office would book whoever beat him uh, to have some return matches, and they would actually travel the circuit and and, and go to other territory. Well, ter- obviously they were going to because they were the new world champion, but whoever the, 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 the former champion was would also go and have a few matches for a week or two because that was always a big thing on television that you know the, the former champion gets a return match, right? Mm-hmm. So as part of that, the NWA in early 84 sent Harley and Flair over as a package to the to the Pacific. And while they were there, and I don't know, has it has it been recognized now or is it still unrecognized that eighth title reign he had? I think it is recognized. It was not for the longest time. I don't know mm-hmm. what caused it to get recognized, but I grew up hearing when Flair won the title back from Sting in like ninety one, I want to say, that mm-hmm. It was actually, no, I think it was the run with against Vader. That was his seventh title run. They mm-hmm. say, oh, oh, he tied Harley Race's uh, record. Right. And, and you, you, know. must, you have to remember when Harley beat Flair in 83 for the title for his seventh run, he had beaten Lou Thez's record of six. So mm-hmm. he became the all time, you know, winningest NWA world champion. 
So anyway, part of the tour with you know, these return matches of, of Harley getting a chance to get to win the belt back from Flair are in New Zealand. And there's you know two major cities in New Zealand, Auckland and Christchurch. The first night they were in the country, they were in Auckland with Flair as the recently crowned champion coming off of Stark 83 and Harley as a challenger. Uh, and then later they were going to take a night off and then the next night they were going to be in Christchurch. Well, they had word had gotten back to the locker room that Christchurch was down a little bit. The pre-sales were not as big as they would, they would like them to be for tickets. So Harley tells Rick, I got an idea. Why don't you drop the belt to me tonight? And then two nights from now, when we're in Christchurch, I'll drop it back to you. But when the fans hear there was a title change in Auckland, it'll, it'll, it'll pop the house in Christchurch, which so they did. And Harley was right. The attendance pre-ticket pre-sale tickets went flying through the roof for the next 24 hours. They didn't get this approved by Bob Geigel and the board. Okay. This is something mm-hmm. that Harley came up with on his own. All right. And this is 1984 long before the internet, they're figuring they can do the title change, switch it back. And no one will be the wiser. The only people that are going to know were the people that were there in the buildings because, you know, they're flying into the, to, to, to New Zealand with Ric Flair, the champion and Harley race, the challenger, and they're going to do the switch and then switch back and fly out the same way. What they didn't know <laughs> was on vacation, his Christmas vacation, uh, to New Zealand. And at the show that night was Paul Bosch, the aforementioned Paul Bosch, the legendary uh, promoter, longtime promoter in Houston, Texas, and very well respected by the NWA board. Uh, and so when he sees this, you can imagine what happened. He gets back to his hotel room and he's immediately on the phone to St. Louis. Hey, Paul Bosch. Hey. Did you approve a title switch for Flair to drop the title back to Harley? No. Well, they just did it. <laughs> and that's kind of how it went down from my understanding. So when they get back to the States, Flair tells the story. They jump down his throat. Like, how dare you do that? You don't, don't you ever change the title without our permission? And Flair's comeback was, why are you yelling at me? It was Harley's idea. Why don't you yell at Harley? And there was like dead silence. Cause, yeah, I didn't think you would. <laughs> so leave me alone. But I just think that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, it is. Anyway, so, sorry, go back to his run in the WWF. We, I, I, I just thought it was important we told. So that is where the, the mythical eighth reign came in that forever wasn't recognized but now is. So he is an eight-time champion. Right. So after the brief run in the AWA, Harley does sign with Vince McMahon and WWF. I, when he first showed up, he was doing the handsome Harley gimmick, but he won the King of the Ring tournament. And I've heard it was a rib. I've heard it was something to give him a title where he didn't actually have to beat anybody for it or something to that effect. But since it was King of the Ring, Harley Race, the guy who took himself so seriously and was known as being this legit badass, is coming to the ring with a cape and a crown and a scepter, declaring himself to be the king and making people bow for him and all that sports entertainment aspect of stuff that you didn't get in the other territories. So... Do you want me to give my opinion on why I think that happened? Sure, absolutely. I don't think it was a rib. I, I, I mean, I can understand why a lot of people think that, but once again, I'll defer to the fact, and, and it's going to upset some of our listeners, a lot of you people have never been in the business, don't know the personalities of the people in the business, but what you've heard or read on the internet, and so you think you understand it, and you really don't. And please don't get offended, but that's why you're a mark. What I think happened was, and you have to understand the dynamics of the business at the time, I think... They they understood what they had in Harley Race. They being pronouns, pal, Vince McMahon. 
Vince McMahon mm-hmm. understood what he had with Harley Race. All right. Harley was at the end of his career. He was probably what, 40 by then, 41, 42, somewhere in there. Yeah. And, and, but it didn't mean he didn't have some gas left in the tank. And it definitely did not mean that he did not have, have credibility still in a lot of the fans' eyes, especially here in the South, where he was seen as the world, like I talked about previously, as the world champion, because he was always in and out of your territory as the world champion for the last, what, 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. He needed to get Hogan credibility as a champion. How much better to do that than to feud your champion with the guy that all these other territories that you can't get your you can't get in those buildings because the territorial system is so entrenched? Then have your champion that you're trying to get credibility for win in a feud against the guy they see as the baddest man on the planet and have thought that for the last 15 years. And the only way to do that is to give a reason why is he all of a sudden a contender? King of the Ring. He's the King mm-hmm. of the Ring. That's why he's a contender for the world title. It, it legitimately gave Harley credibility in that circus cartoon world that was Vince's by making him the king of the ring and automatically gave him a feud where he he, he justify in the fans' eyes and in a storyline way why Harley Race was, was challenging Hulk Hogan for the world title. And now you also know why Hulk Hogan was feuding with him to get credibility with fans that did not buy Hulk Hogan at the time. Because that was a problem even back then. I know a lot of people don't believe that. You know, but Vince was changing the, the landscape so dramatically. And people often ask, this just ties into this. People often ask, well, why didn't Vince do what the Crockett's did and just buy these territories? Well, one, he'd already done that on Black Saturday with Georgia, and it didn't really work out. You have to understand Vince had the vision to see that the money wasn't in territories because the way a territory was run was you'd have two or three big towns. And then the rest of your time was spilled with was filled during the week with spot shows to pay the guys. Vince was never going to do that. Vince was never going to come to the small towns that were being run in these territories. He, Vince was more interested in television markets because of his, his vision for a national promotion. So Vince didn't care about a place like Greenville, South Carolina, but he cared about Atlanta and Charlotte. You follow what I'm saying? Yes. So having a guy in those towns like Harley Race, who was seen as a world champion in places that Vince was interested in getting in, like Atlanta, or Charlotte, or Richmond, or Houston, or Dallas, or New Orleans, or Miami, southern towns, big towns, Nashville. He had to have somebody Hulk Hogan could beat that those fans could see on their television Hulk Hogan beat and go, oh, wow, maybe Hulk Hogan's better than we thought. That is why I think Harley Race was made king of the ring, was simply to have an excuse to have him feud with Hogan so Hogan could get the rub from Harley. Does that make sense to you as a fan? Yes, yes, it does make sense. And one other thing I wanted to mention about this run as the king, he did have entrance music, and it was actual classical style music. It wasn't music made for him, but I'm going to play a snippet from it. And the song is actually called uh, The Great Gates of Kiev. But if you've mainly been familiar with WWE over the last 25 years or so, this is still going to sound familiar. Of course, that was also the music that Jerry the King Lawler's been using for his entry into matches in the WWE. So since what the nineties, <laughs> right, right. So I, I just think it's kind of funny, and really, it, it's appropriate since it's very regal sounding. You know, I just think it's kind of funny that they recycled a theme years later to use for a different guy. 
I can think another time the the Patriot when he had that short uh, title title feud with Bret Hart in the early '90s, his mm-hmm. theme music got recycled about ten years later for Kurt Angle. Right. <laughs> so, but you know, it, it's um, I know this when Harley passed. You know, I wanted to kind of remember him, so I start. I went on the network and looked up some things, and one of the things I watched was his induction in 2004 to the WWE Hall of Fame, and he talks about his run as the king. And um, he he addresses directly sitting on the front row, Linda, Shane and Stephanie. Of course, Vince is, you know, us is, is is obviously gone and he always has been. And I think that's Vince's choice at the Hall of Fames. He doesn't want the focus to be on him. So he's never out front and center like his wife and kids are. He's always backstage. But he called Vince out by name and thanked them and said he would always have the McMahon's back because here he was at the end of his career when he didn't really feel that he had anything left yet, they took him on and made him the first King of the ring and made him, uh, you know, a, a main event guy when they didn't have to. Um, so I would never say Harley was one that, uh, at least in the time that I knew him was one that suffered of a lack of confidence, but as a, as, as a retired vet myself now, I understand as an athlete, that feeling when you know, you're right at the end. And so to have a guy that you can look around and realize, okay, this guy's taken over and he still wants me in my main event, in his main events, even though I'm no, I ain't got much left in the tank. That has got to be a nice ego stroke. Agreed. One other thing that happened in this WWE run was a pretty famous match he had with Hogan. I think it was on a Saturday night's main event where he positioned Hogan on a table and wanted to do his Diving headbutt, you know, the move that Chris Benoit used for years, what Daniel Bryan was using. Dynamite kid. Right. So he went for that and Hogan got off the table and Harley crashed into the table. So here, like 10 years before it became commonplace, now you almost kind of can't go through a major wrestling show without somebody going through a table. The fact they did that in, in the 1980s. The bad part of this is in real life, it did injure Harley. He had a pretty serious hernia because of it and he was actually out of action for a couple months two things about that spot i often wonder when i see it part of me wants to say that was one of those is when harley when it was going up top was it planned for hogan to move or was it one of those as harley is going up the top hogan in his mind's going nope don't work for me brother and rolled out of the way the logical side of me says that hogan didn't shoot on his move because hogan ain't that stupid (laughs) (laughs) I think it was, I've heard people say, well, that was, that was because Hogan just decided to, to, to shoot on Harley's move at the end. No, Hogan ain't that dumb. Okay. (laughs) Harley would have kicked his ass. Even it, even though he was smaller and older and not as good a shape as Hogan. I I think that was planned. Uh, I do know also to add to this, and I think I've brought this up before on maybe an a one podcast years ago, Harley has told me himself of, he has no regrets, but he does wish he hadn't he hadn't started doing that move because of the aforementioned hernia. Because I hurt myself with it, and at the time, this was before you know the tragedy of the end of Chris Benoit's life. But Chris was having issues from using it. Dynamite was having issues, and just guys that Harley respected and liked, and he himself getting hurt from it. He's like, it's just a move that I, he he openly told me, I wish I'd have never started doing it. It's one of those things would I, I would ask, you know, what can you do with a headbutt that can't be done with an elbow or a big splash? But that's just me. The only guy that's ever done that spot and it seems to not have hurt was the Barbarian because that was his finisher for years. 
here in the Carolinas in the 80s. And even he, if you remember at the end of Barbie's career when he was tagging with Ming as the powers of pain, he was doing the mafia kick as his finisher, you know, the big boot. Right. So even he got away from doing it. But he's the only guy that I know of that didn't get hurt. And no discredit to to Harley because we just sat here and talked about how tough he was. But I think we all know how tough the barbarian is. A freak of nature. Maybe right. maybe your neck's that thing. It's just not meant to get hurt. But I don't know. Maybe it's the way he did do it a little differently. Uh, usually Barbie would aim for the rib cage or the guy's shoulder with his head. Whereas all the other guys we mentioned, they would actually go for the head-to-head contact. But Harley didn't just do it from the top. He did it from the second. He would do it from a standing position when you were laying on the mat. Anyway, I, they, I just thought our, our listeners like, no, Harley personally told me himself. He, he looks back and sees how much damage it did to him and other guys. He wished he'd never started doing it. One of the big feuds that Harley had during that WWE run was in 1987, and he was feuding with Junkyard Dog, who really arguably was the number two babyface for WWE at the time under, under Hogan. And the stipulation to the match, I don't think the King title part was, was on the line, but the stipulation was the loser had to bow to the winner. So to match with the whole gimmick that we were talking about Harley having a few minutes ago. Now, Harley did win that match and dog kind of does this half hearted dip bow, so to speak, but then he attacks Harley, lays him out and left with the crown and cape and, and the whole bit. And I've heard Lance Storm talk about this because he was watching uh, as a kid at this point, and he was a big Junkyard Dog fan, so he was watching already to see Junkyard Dog win, and then he was like, well, wait, why why did they have the bad guy win? Why did this happen? Well, because in a few months, Harley went on to feud with Hogan, and so it's like, ah, okay, so they kept him looking good to go into that feud with Hogan. And let's be honest, who wasn't a JYD fan at that point? <laughs> yeah, I, I've said before, uh, outside of Hogan himself, when I was a kid, the first wrestler that I saw where I just thought, this guy is cool, was Junkyard Dog. You know, the way he talked and the chains and the whole bit. And I quote uh, Michael P.S. Hayes, Junkyard Dog didn't know how to do anything but sell tickets. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> During that run in WWE, he had feuds with guys like, like I said, Hogan and Duggan and stuff like that, but left around 1989. I think Haku had taken the throne and the cape by this point because because of that injury. So I don't know if he was a babyface going into the matches with Haku or not. But I'm trying to remember, once again, I was not watching a whole lot of WWE because, you know, the Crockett's were still running hard, but both Haku and, and Harley were in Bobby, Bobby the Brain Heenan stable. So maybe it was one of those things he just gave it to Haku because they were, they were stable mates. I don't remember though. Right, right. It could, it, that would make sense. That now, sounds like something that Bobby the Brain could pull the promo off that fans would, would buy and still hate everybody involved. So yeah, I can, <laughs> makes sense. Now, after that WWE run, Harley did do some indie stuff. I think he wrestled in Puerto Rico, had a couple of matches. His last real run on national TV was where I became familiar with him, which was that run where he came to WCW circa 1990. And he did do some wrestling, but the rest of his stint in WCW was as a manager, most notably for Big Van Vader. And he also managed Luger, I think was his first protege and such. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was around the time that Flair left left the company, and they decided to switch Luger heel to put the belt on him. And so, as part of of the the heel switch for Luger, 
to give him credibility as a heel. They gave him Harley as a manager, and let's be honest, because Luger's not a great talker, and Harley is. And they also, if you remember at the time, they switched it to where Luger wasn't doing um, Luger wasn't doing the, the t- human torture rack as his finisher anymore. He was using the Paul driver that in storyline had been taught to him by Harley Race because that was one of Harley's finishers. And it was one of the ugliest Paul drivers I've ever seen in my <laughs> life, but I digress. Right. Also, Harley's last matches that he had in his career were during his WCW run because there was that big angle at Starcade 93 where Flair as a babyface beat Big Van Vader. And Flair would defend the title on house shows, but I believe Vader got injured in some capacity, so Harley actually filled in for him. And these were in Southern States, so I'm sure the fans didn't mind them seeing Harley versus Flair one more time. Oh, no. And and I love that here is a guy in his 50s now, and I remember this in, in Vader Sting matches, Vader Cactus Jack matches, and Vader Flair matches. Harley's in his 50s still doing spots, you know? Missing the headbutt, flying headbutt from the top, getting getting yanked from the from the you know the the ring apron into the ring and taking a bump and stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> working and taking more bumps as a fifty something year old manager than some of the guys that are actually wrestling on the on the same card. But that, you know that's awesome. Right after his retirement, Harley did do some work as a process server, and if you don't know what a process server is, they are people that are hired by the local government or some government entity to make sure people get legal papers, like they're being subpoenaed or indicted or something to that effect. And it's Divorce papers sh- are common ones. <laughs> right, right. So I think it's easy to see why he would have a job like that, because who's going to try to you know, fight him to get, get rid of them? You know, nobody. If they did, mistake. That's all I can say. <laughs> right. In 1999... Harley did start up an independent promotion called World League Wrestling that he was the promoter of. Now, I haven't seen any stuff from this promotion, but I know some of the names that had come out of it, you know, names like uh, Tommaso Ciampa and such. But I think uh, probably, probably Tommaso Ciampa and Trevor Murdoch are probably the biggest, two biggest names to come out of there. Okay. And he also ran uh, a training school about this time as well. So he had a hand uh-huh. in, in training people as well. Now, this is about the time that I met Harley because okay. um, what happened? What what had happened? We joke at work. That's how every lie starts. But <laughs> anyway, um, as I've brought up before, my trainer' wife was also a professional wrestler, and her trainer and longtime tag team partner Beverly Shade lived in St. Louis, and her and her husband were friends with Harley and Harley's wife BJ because you know St. Louis, Kansas City aren't that far apart. Um, and uh, anyway. She was. It was through Beverly that she, that you know Harley had just started running WLW World World League Wrestling that they got us booked. And the story I've told before about going going in uh, and meeting Harley was for that show. It was a show we wrestled for him two nights, and he did what he what Harley was known to do. Harley was one of those guys that was smart with his money, and he invested it. He didn't waste it when he was on the road, and he had built a beautiful one-story brick ranch in the suburban Kansas City and had a custom backyard, had a beautiful pool and this beautiful covered back patio with the full bricked-in, almost, it was a kitchen, essentially. It had a a tap-in line for for beer, had a sink, had a a refrigerator, a full gas grill on it, a uh, four-eye stovetop, 
you know, a cutting board area. It was, it was essentially a kitchen outside. And one of the things Harley did after his in-ring career was over, anytime the WCW or WWE was in Kansas City or when he ran his own shows later on, he would have a big, huge cookout for the boys. You know, he would make this big, huge, like 10 gallon pot of chili and he would do these just succulent Kansas City style barbecue ribs out on the grill, which are just awesome. And, and just, it was just, he just, he loved the boys. Harley, even though he was in anybody's Hall of Fame and one of the toughest guys of all time, he loved all guys who strapped on the boots and got in the ring. He respected all of them from the prelim guys to the main eventers. Harley was always was. Till the day he died, Harley was one of the boys, period. Now, I guess we'll wrap this up here. You mentioned Hall of Fame. I'm going to list the major Halls of Fame that Harley is a member of. That, of course, being WWE, but the NWA Hall of Fame, Pro Wrestling, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. And, I mean, WCW had a Hall of Fame, but that, they only had like two years where they inducted people. But right. only six other men have also been inducted into all those Hall of Fame, and many of them you would guess. One of them, though, was actually an announcer, but we're talking names like Luthez, Eddie Graham, Ric Flair, both Funks, and Gordon Soley. So that's some pretty Pretty, pretty, pretty elite list. Pretty elite list. <laughs> Do you have any favorite Harley stories? Obviously, I have a few that are from my personal interaction with the man, and some are not, but do you have any that you remember as a fan of Harley? I think probably the one that sticks out to me the most would be the one you, you had talked about with, with Vince. But I remember hearing that uh, he had done stuff like pull a gun on Hogan or, or something to that effect. I don't know the full meaning <laughs> of that story, but. Oh, that was a, yeah, that's a true story. That happened when, when Hogan was the champion uh, for Vince and he hadn't left the NWA yet. And like I said, he had gone home to quote unquote, protect his town from Vince and, Harley literally showed up one night when Vince had booked Kansas City, and he he went, he walked in the back of the building. Who's going to stop Harley Race, right? And had his nine millimeter with him and pulled it on Hogan. And he held it up to Hogan's head and said, "What do you think you're doing tonight, kid? I'm just working, man. Just working, brother." <laughs> Eventually, somebody talked to Harley and calmed them down, but that did happen. There's there's that's verified. Okay, <laughs> I did like the story, and I think there's still photo evidence of this happening where a fan had approached Harley and Nick Bockwinkle for autographs and Harley signed his autograph like the real world champion or something like that and uh, Nick Bockwinkle signed his like two-thirds of the world champion or something like that <laughs> you know he was a little he was a little uh, self-deprecating in his signature after seeing Harley sign his uh, many old timers told me Harley didn't just go in and end fights. He went in looking to start fights. Harley really took that. I'm the world champion uh, and the kayfabe to get the marks to believe that, that wrestlers are really tough. He took that seriously. Uh, one of his favorite things to do, the old coin operated um, pool tables, you know, guys would put a quarter on it and, and you would go down. You see this line of quarters on the side, meaning, you know, the next quarters next up, they get the winner. Harley would walk in, knock all the quarters off and go, and of course, he he always smoked cigarettes, and he'd take a puff of cigarette. I'm next, and nobody would argue. <laughs> and if they <laughs> did, it ended badly. Um, there are so many great Harley. There was, I, I think it was 
the night there was a night in Florida where him and Jack Briscoe decided to get into a scuffle just for the hell of it in a in a in a hotel room and wound up breaking both the beds because they started rolling around in between the beds in the hotel room and it took like eight guys to break up him and Jack Briscoe you know so uh, uh, that I, that Florida had some crazy things happen in Florida I, I, Honor the Giant tried to drown Black Jack Mulligan in the ocean and the Briscoes and Barry Windham wound up getting a fire truck in a tree but Florida was known for some crazy stuff going on. Um, one of my favorite is I've heard the story of, um, it's cause there are three stories I want to relate. One was, was, was a brief one was the first time he had met Kurt Henning and Kurt Henning. This is in that run. You were talking about AWA at the end of his career. And Kurt was an up and coming guy and Kurt idolized Harley cause he had been his dad's tag team partner and they introduced Kurt and, Kurt was going to wrestle Harley that night. And he's like, hello, Mr. Race. Nice to meet you. you know, Kurt had that high pitched voice and, uh, and, he, and, and Harley just puffing on a cigarette and looks at him. What's your finisher kid? Uh, I do a drop kick off the top. Harley puffs his cigarette real slowly. and goes, I'll move. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that kind of stuff. There was, you know, we brought up earlier. Harley was the guy that the NWA would send in when they thought there was going to be a problem. I mean, where it was going to get physical, that kind of thing. So there were these two young uh, Samoan teenagers in San Francisco, both 16. They would come to the, uh, the matches that Roy Shires was running at the Cow Palace, and they would get upset when the top babyface, who was also Samoan, High, P- High Chief Peter Maivia, would get screwed by the heels like Pat Patterson and Ray the Crippler Stevens. And these two young Samoans were named Afa and Sika. Uh, and so it got to the point where they were literally beating up all the guys, all the boys. So the NWA gets a call from Roy Shires and Roy uh, and, and, and Bob are at the time with Sam Mushnick said, I'll send Harley. And Roy, Roy Shires like, thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> Harley flies in to go work San Francisco. Same scenario. Here comes a young Alpha and Sika. And, uh, Harley looks over at him and said, you too. And, you know, does his little finger like follow me. They apparently go around a, a doorway, and about five minutes later, Harley and often he could come around the corner. He looks at Roy Shire and says, you're just going to have to smarten him up. I don't know what happened. No one knows what happened. But I don't know if that's a testament to how tough Harley is or how tough Offen Sika are. But I think it's a testament to all three of them being, being you know, tough guys. <laughs> but, but I love that story. So Offen Sika got into the business essentially because Harley Race gave him the thumb of approval. Um, but uh, one of my favorite stories, and, I, and I've told this one before, but I'll tell it again. Um, cause it relates back to the first time that I met Harley, uh, Rocky Johnson, who of course is the father of the rock, uh, well known in the wrestling business is terrified of snakes. I mean like a phobia type level of, of, of scared of, well, Harley knew this cause obviously he's in the business and he knew that Rocky was one of the top guys here in the Carolinas. And so was blackjack. He, we knew he was going to be coming in here to the Carolinas, uh, for a run. And he'd arranged to ride with, with, with blackjack and rocky johnson while he was here in the carolinas so in preparation for this because harley liked to rib don't know how he captured a copperhead rattlesnake and then convinced someone i think a veterinarian there in the kansas city area to sew the mouth of the snake shut so it couldn't bite you still has the rattle and you can imagine for somebody who's terrified of snakes you hear that rattle you're gonna you're gonna lose your stuff right mm-hmm. so anyway he somehow Gets the snake, gets the mouse, and gets it, gets it, uh, has it, ha- gets it uh, through customs. This is the seventies. It's much easier here to the Carolinas. And one night after a show, they're, they're driving down the road and the wheel man's blackjack 
Bob's told me this story too. So it was, I, I think Bob, sorry, Blackjack was the first guy who told me this story actually, but I've heard it from multiple sources. Um, and, um, Harley's in, in the passenger seat and Rocky's in the back and it's big Lincoln continental. Cause Bob always had the big cars back then. And there was this thing in the business we call a, a Harley race cooler. What Harley would do is after a show, he would, he would go to the gas station, convenience store and buy a box of like the lawn and leaf, the really big black garbage bags. Two bags of ice and a 24-pack of beer. And he just dumped the ice and the beer <laughs> in the bag and then put it on the floorboard in between his feet. And that was a Harley race cooler, you know? And so he would just reach down as they're driving down the road and grab a beer and drink a beer and throw what out, empty out the window and grab another one. And um, so they're riding down the road, and he asks, hey, Rocky, you want, want, want a beer? Sure. So, Ro- so Harley reaches down, and, of course, Rocky can't tell – that he's not reaching into the Harley race cooler. He's actually reaching into this other black bag that said snake is in. And Harley just non plus doesn't even look back, just chucks it over his shoulder. And it lands slap in Rocky Johnson's lap. <laughs> Rocky Johnson loses it. He's kicking the back of Bob's seat, kicking the windows. Bob's like, if I'm going to pull this car, you hurt my, you break my window, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> About this fight, and he's losing it. And finally, Harley's like, would you quit being a blankety blank? He goes, his damn mouth sewed shut. <laughs> And that kind of ended it. But that, that's a funny story. But for where it comes personal for me was, I like I said, I'd heard this story from multiple sources. And I had asked many people, where did Harley get the snake? That was always the thing that bothered me. I mean, because Harley was, there are a lot of guys in the wrestling business that are known to be outdoorsmen and hunters. Everybody knows about Shawn Michaels and Stone Cold and and, and Ray Trailer and Paul Lorndorf and, and Rick, Rick Rude, Eric Bischoff. All guys like to hunt and fish, right? Everybody's heard those stories. Harley was not one of those guys. So I always wondered, where did Harley get the snake? And many old timers probably ribbing me because I was, I was green. Why don't you ask Harley if you get a chance to? So at that said barbecue that I mentioned earlier, the first time I had met Harley and went into work shows for him, I figured this is an opportune time to do this. So Harley is sitting, you know, it's just the coolest. I mean, you've got the, the button up shirt that's about buttoned down to his belly button and a pair of shorts on a flip flops sitting in, sitting on a change lounge there. And, it, you know, he, he literally is the king over his kingdom there poolside with a cigarette in one hand and a cold beer in the other. And I walk over and introduce myself and thank him for opening his home up to us. And I ask him, I, I relate the story to him. I said, well, at first I said, Mr. Race, can I relate a story to you? I've heard. He said, sure. So I told him the story and he kind of chuckled. He goes, yeah, that happened. And I said, well, can I ask you a question? He's like, sure, kid. I said, how did you get the snake? And I'm, this is my best Harley race impression. Well, kid, I faked him out with a right, and then I got him with a left. And then just <laughs> puffed a cigarette again. Like, he wasn't kidding. He was dead serious. And I walked over to, to Tracy, my, my, my trainer's wife, and I said, Harley race just told me the, re- the way he got that snake was he faked it out with a right, and he got it with a left. And her response was, well, if that's what Harley race said, that's, that's how it's happened. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, he just, I, I, I'm sure he was working me, but it was so believable. There were, there were a lot of stories of Harley was a left-handed guy like Arn. And if you watch his matches, he usually would punch with his left hand. He, there were many old timers would tell me if he would hit a guy in a bar fight and he didn't knock him down right away, he would stop and literally walk 180 degrees behind the, or 360 around behind the guy and come back around to the front of him. The guy would look at him and go, what are you doing? Well, I had to go behind you to see what was holding you up because I know I got you with a left. <laughs> so that was that was Harley Race. I mean, he's the one of a kind, man, one of a kind. All right, we'll wrap this up here by 
thanking you folks for listening. This is Classic Wrestling Memories. We do want to do some more shows that are, you know, not just biographies. We got several ideas for that. But if you want to get in touch with us, the website is classicwrestlingmemories.com. And you can also find the social media at TWBP show for the Wrestling Brethren podcast show because we are affiliated with Wrestling Brethren and TWBpodcast.com on the web. So if you're hearing this for the first time, first off, thank you and give us a like on the podcast player of your choosing. Look us up on iTunes, uh, give us a subscription, give us a star rating. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we're not doing well. Uh, All my shows, I say I like to see how I can better the shows in any way, and I welcome feedback, especially if it's genuine. So, Train, if anybody wants to contact you, where can they find you? They can always find me at CrazyTrain underscore JB. Uh, I have a lot of other stories about Harley, so if you want to hear one, let me know, and I'll I'll, I'll tweet some more out. I I was lucky to get to meet him. Uh, he, was, he wasn't as close to me as Wahoo, but I had the same vibe with him I got from Wahoo. This is a man's man, and, and I was... Very fortunate to sit under the learning tree of Harley a few times, and and, and I'm eternally grateful for that because he was a man's man, and he was everything a professional wrestler should be. We'll end this show with another one of the promos Harley cut at at some point in his career, and this is Harley in the late 70s. This was around the time he was doing those title-for-title matches, and really you could kind of say might have been the only time you may have seen him as being a a babyface, probably because of the... You know, he's our guy type wrestler here. So mm-hmm. we'll leave with these words from the greatest wrestler on God's green earth, Harley Race. Obviously, Harley, you have to be, well, sitting here now with mixed emotions. First off, Gordon, before I get to mine, I want to put credit where credit's due and congratulate Steve Kearns and Mike Graham because they upset a much, much bigger and rugged team. And they done it quite decisively. And just listening to you talk about the NWA versus the WWF, there wasn't a person that left the Orange Bowl, and you saw countless hundreds of them as I walked back to the dressing room that did not think that I had the upper hand when the 60-minute bell was ringing. Superstar Billy Graham was asleep on the canvas did not get up for some two minutes later. You witnessed it. Some 15,000 plus wrestling fans witnessed it. There's no doubt in my mind. Sure, I've got mixed emotions. But as far as doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that I can beat superstar Billy Graham. It was proven right here tonight to me. Maybe not legitimately to the wrestling fans or to you or anyone else, nor does it really matter to me that it wasn't that way. I know in my own mind, in my own heart, that I can beat Billy Graham, that I am truly world's heavyweight champion, and there's nothing, not a thing on the face of this earth that's going to discredit me. And if he wants to get back in that squared circle, we can darn well do it again. There you have it. And, of course, there was a rematch clause, so it remains to be seen if these two great gladiators will meet again.
Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. You know, I was thinking about one of the one of the examples of how tough Harley was that that night that, uh, you know, the, the there was a switch with in Augusta with Tommy Rich, Buck Robley, Paul. I've heard Michael Hayes tell this story. Paul Buck Robley came to him and the birds and told him, uh, you guys might want to stick around. It's going to get a little heated, you know, after the main event. And they knew the main event was Tommy Rich, Harley Race. And Michael Hayes said the only thing he could think was, what's Buck worried about? Harley could beat up everybody in this building at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> And getting back to that take the damn money promo, how many guys, and I'm not even joking when I'm saying this, how many guys could have the afro and mutton chops look in a plaid suit and still look like a badass? Well, that that, that plaid suit was styling in 78, but it was 83, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. you know. Okay. Well, uh, you, know get, uh, you, know what, you know what's funny? I've had guys in the business. 